You're listening to Radical Philosophy on Radio 3CR, 855 on your AM dial. And I'm Catherine Jenkins, Assistant Professor of Philosophy at the University of Nottingham. Like some food for thought? Tune in to Radical Philosophy with discussions on freedom, happiness, knowledge, evil and rational argument. With words from Midgley, Caputi, Adams, Stewart, Wolf, and Hagen Gruber. Let's get radical about philosophy. Thanks so much for tuning into Radical Philosophy. I'm your host, Beth Matthews. Today on the program, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Emma Dalton about women in Japanese politics. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Beth. Now, could you give us a little bit of background information about yourself? Uh, Yeah, sure. Uh, So I am a lecturer at RMIT University. Um, I teach Japanese, the the language, and um, my research area is on women in politics in Japan. Specifically, I look at the underrepresentation of women in politics in Japan, and at the moment I'm... uh, about to finish a manuscript about the sexual harassment of women in politics in Japan. So I look at the sort of you know the big picture of gender inequality in Japan, focusing on politics. So you would have spent a, a fair bit of time in Japan, have you? Yeah, yeah. So I um, I first started studying the language when I was uh, at school in Brisbane. So I grew up in Queensland, and um, Japanese. Uh, was a pretty popular language um, in the you know, 1980s and 90s. So I studied at school and I first went to Japan on an exchange program when I was about 14 um, to like my, my you know, sister school and then again for a year when I was 17. And then after that I just went um, back and forth. So in total I've spent about uh, eight years living in Japan on and off. Working, wow. studying, yeah. Mm-hmm. So what was it that inspired your interest in women in Japanese politics? Mm. Yeah, so when I first went to Japan, I was, um, as I mentioned, I was really a child. I was a teenager. Um, and I stayed with host families. And um, I was really struck by the gendered division of labour inside the home. It was really stark. Um so my host mums, like I stayed in three different homestay families, and my host mums would, you know, they were the first ones up in the morning cooking our breakfast but also our lunches for the day, you know, uh, or bed door for the, for the day for all the kids and her husband as well, so my host dad. Um, you know, always in an apron, um, last one to bed, first one up in the morning, um, and my host fathers were, you know, they'd left early for work, came home, and, um, you know, it really didn't contribute to any sort of household tasks. <laughs> and this really struck me as quite unusual. Um, I mean, my, I grew up in a pretty um, conservative, traditional household as well in Australia, but there was always some sort of tension, like mum would be like, oh, why don't you do more housework sort of thing to my dad? But there was none of that in Japan. It seemed very uh, strictly divided. This is your, These are your roles sort of thing. And I remember also I would, um, you know, hang out with my friends, um, my school friends in Japan, 
And one day we were, you know, just talking as you do when you're 17, what are you going to do when you finish school, you know, what, what do you want to be when you grow up sort of conversation. And I remember one girl said, oh, nothing really, I just want to get married and be a housewife. And, you know, I went to school in Brisbane in the 90s when it was all about girls can do anything, sort of, you know, there were bumper stickers, you know, girls can do anything, girl power, that sort of, you know, that sort of era. So I was really, um, really surprised to hear this, um, that someone my age could think, uh, I don't necessarily want a career, I just want to get married and have children and be a housewife. Um, so this sort of exposure to uh, the gendered roles in Japanese society at a very young age um, sparked my interest. And then, you know, after I studied, I, I, so I did my undergrad in Japanese language and focused on the language, really, and then I did my honours and wrote about the Equal Employment Opportunity Law and its relationship to the feminist movement in Japan. So I did a thesis on that. And then after that, it just sort of kept going and somehow I ended up in, somehow I ended up looking at politics. <laughs> yeah. So that's what I, that's what I ended up doing. Mm. Right. So how did the major political party in Japan construct the modern Japanese political system? Uh, so the modern Japanese political system uh, developed after the conclusion of uh, World War Two, when um, the new constitution was introduced and Japan began its path to um, uh, democracy. So the modern political system is... Um, uh, the Westminster system with two houses, like Australia, it's got an upper house and a lower house, and um, the main political party uh, also was formed in 1955, that's called the Liberal Democratic Party, and Japanese politics since then has been dominated by that party, so it's been in power since then, since 1955, until now it's still in power, with only um, two very short breaks. So the opposition, unfortunately, is not very powerful and the LDP has really dominated uh, politics in the post-war period since Japan's become a um, democracy. Could you explain about the approach taken by the Liberal Democratic Party? So the, the LDP is a conservative political party and it has uh, focused on economic policies to... So it's, it's prioritised the economy over um, most other things. And what this has meant is um, that social welfare uh, is not perhaps as prioritised as uh, it might necessarily... It should be. So many... So it's very popular in Japan. So the LDP is very powerful and it continues to win elections because it has gained its reputation of being reliable because it... You know, Japan went from being um, financially destitute, basically after World War II, it was a, um, a destitute country. The LDP helped through its policies, social and economic policies, to create um, a huge economy. So Japan is, well, it was number two, now it's number three largest economy in the world. And the general population in Japan are pretty happy with the status quo, uh, or have been the majority of them anyway, and that's reflected in uh, the LDP just keeps winning. In in regards to the underrepresentation of Japanese women in politics, what percentage of women in politics is there in Japan? So on a national level, it's 
only, unfortunately, 12%. And this compares to, say, in Australia, I think it's about 35%. Um, and most other advanced democracies are similar, somewhere between you know, 20 and 40 or 50%. Japan is an outlier in terms of uh, amongst advanced industrialised countries. It has the lowest um, representation of women in national politics amongst um, those countries. And when it comes to local level politics, similarly, it does pretty poorly. So um, there are some local councils in Japan. In fact, a quarter of local councils in Japan have no women on them. Um, so it's, it's quite different depending on where you go in Japan as well. So, for example, some local level councils in Tokyo can have up to 40 or even 50% of women. But then you go to other parts of Japan and there are no women on the councils. And then you go to the national level, as I mentioned, and it's only 12%. So would you say that country areas sort of um, have less women involved in politics? Yeah, so the tendency, the the smaller the um, administrative level goes, the fewer women there tend to be on the council, uh, when you get to local levels at least. So yeah, rural rural Japan is can be quite, um, can have pretty low um, levels of female political representation, definitely. So It also depends on the political party. So, so yes, yeah, sorry, as I mentioned, the LDP has been really dominant. And if you look at the national level, the LDP has really low number of women elected, whereas the other political parties... The opposition, so the Communist Party, the Social Democratic Party, the Constitutional Democratic Party of Japan, they have much higher portion, proportion of women, but they don't have enough seats in the national diet. So therefore, the overall representation of women remains low because of the LDP dominance. Right. So what are some of the experiences of women that have been involved in party politics in Japan um, so, oh, where, where, where should I start? Um, okay, so I'll start with, um, let's see, Koike Yuriko is probably the most, at the moment, the most well-known and most powerful female politician in Japan. She's the governor of Tokyo. Um, she used to be a member of the LDP in the diet, in the national level politics, and she decided she uh, wanted to run for uh, governor of Tokyo and she made this um, public and then she went to get the endorsement. You have to get the endorsement of your political party before you do that. And she went to get the endorsement of the LDP and they said, no, we're not going to endorse you because you should have asked us first before you went public with it. So she decided to run on her own um, and she won and she's really, really popular and then she left the LDP and she's created, created her own political party in Tokyo called the um, Tokyoites First Party. And she's been really successful in harnessing young people. Um, I mean, she's a conservative. She's a sort of neoliberal type politician. But she harnessed this um, group, these large sort of floating voters in Tokyo who were sick and tired of the old, um, old guard. And she represents something that's a bit fresher. And she has, um, even though she's a neoliberal sort of conservative politician, she is actually quite old school herself, 
she has, uh, she's got this image of being pro-women because she has implemented our policies to increase the number of childcare places and um, so and that will enable more women in Tokyo to uh, go to work. So that's one example of a woman politician. Right. So do you have any other examples? Well, I mean, the book I'm writing at the moment is about sexual harassment. So, and I, I interviewed um, about 40, a little over 40 people uh, a year and a half ago. I spent six months in Tokyo and lots of different parts of Japan interviewing women from all different levels of um, politics. And, yeah, some of them had um, some pretty shocking stories to tell about the treatment that they had received as politicians. So sexual harassment of women politicians can be perpetrated by other politicians or it can be perpetrated by members of the public, you know, voters. And, um, yeah, some of the things, especially the women in the rural areas, there seems to be a quite a um, conservative and patriarchal view of women in general in many of the rural parts of Japan where members of the public and just people in general, men in general, struggle to see women as uh, individual, independent, autonomous human beings, even politicians. So instead they're treated like barmaids, hostesses, um, or they're seen as potential girlfriends or potential sex partners. So they're not treated as equal equals at all, let alone um, politicians. <laughs> So how how do women in politics negotiate the male-dominated world of Japanese politics? Mm. Um, that's a good question. So, on the, so when I did these um, interviews in 2019 and 2020, I, I was... Willing, I wanted to talk to anyone from any political party. I was happy to talk to anyone. But almost probably 75% of the people I spoke to, the women I spoke to, were from left-leaning political parties. So conservative women uh, in Japanese politics tend to um, adopt this approach that, you know, gender-blind sort of thing, just like they do in Australia, I guess, you know. So meritocracy, um, individualism, sexual harassment is something that they turn a blind eye to um, and they just toughen up to cope in the male-dominated culture. Whereas a lot of the more left-leaning women politicians were a bit more vocal about it, but even they would discover that the best way to uh, maintain you know, to not ruffle feathers would be just to keep your head down in the face of, you know, harassment and discrimination. So I don't know if you'd know a lot about this, but um, how would women sort of go go about um, uh, navigating the, the legal system if they wanted to bring charges mm. against anybody with um, any men mm, for sexual mm, harassment? Mm. Well, for sexual harassment... Um, is something that is the responsible the prevention of sexual harassment is the responsibility of employers. Right, that's how the laws work. 
um, in most countries, including in Japan. Politicians aren't employed by anyone. So they're elected officials. And this is the case not just in Japan, but everywhere. And this is, I mean, this is the whole, this is becoming a discussion in Australia as well um, and in other countries. Politics seems to be this weird world where normal workplace sexual harassment legislation doesn't seem to apply. People get away with a lot of things, including uh, crimes like sexual assault. Um, so politicians themselves don't have um, places to go to, unless, of course, it's an assault, which, of course, you go to the police for. But in many cases, women don't um, want to take that step. Um, in the immediate aftermath. But in terms of sexual harassment, yeah, the workplace sexual harassment legislations don't apply to politicians per se. And on top of that, sexual, the sexual harassment laws in Japan, are, they're the responsibility of the employer, but the employer is only obliged to prevent sexual harassment, not to prohibit. And Japan is one of only... I think two or three countries in the world who are signatories to the International Labour Organization who don't have legislation that prohibits sexual harassment. And this is something that the ILO has said, you need to change this. So Japan is now under pressure to actually do something about uh, improving its sexual harassment law, whether this then um, helps or you know, changes anything in the world of politics, I don't know, but it's probably a step in the right direction. Yeah, I think sometimes that a law has to change before people's attitudes change. Yeah, de- yeah, definitely. It's, I mean, even if law doesn't, even if the laws don't specifically have that immediate enforcing effect, it's a symbolic. It has symbolic meaning. That you know, th- these are the values that we have in society, and this is why the law has changed. Yeah. So, why do you think it's so important to have women in Japanese politics? Well, I suppose there's, you know, reasons of, uh, first of all, democracy. So for a functioning democracy, uh, it's necessary for people to be represented fairly. And when the imbalance is as great as it is in Japan, I think it's fair to say that people are not, or women are not being represented fairly. Um, and, you know, in terms of getting women's voices onto the policy-making agenda... While, you know, some might say, oh, men, men can speak for women, uh, it's probably better if there are at least, you know, some women there as well who, who can um, push for women's issues. So, for example, women's health rights, um, you know, violence against women, working rights for women. Women in Japan, um, the gender inequality is quite a serious problem. So women are quite... The, the status of women at work is quite low, uh, the, the pay gap is quite big. So it's important to have women, women's voices at the decision-making table to change those things because without them there, even though men might, in theory, be able to act for women, uh, it's, likely, well, it's more likely that those um, issues will fall off the agenda if um, it's mainly men at the decision-making table. Why do you think that Japan is lagging behind with, well, basically women's rights? Yeah, it's a tough question. 
This is a very difficult question. Um, but I think um, in terms of politics, the fact that the LDP has been in power for so long is a real obstacle to getting more women's voices onto the decision-making table. So, for example, last week, I think it was last week, after Mori Yoshi, uh, you know, Mori, the, the former director of the um, Tokyo Olympic Committee, stood down after his sexist commentary, the LDP announced that they wanted to have more women in decision-making roles so they announced that from now on they wanted at least five LDP women diet members at their board meetings. However, those women were allowed to take notes and observe, but they can't say anything. I mean, it's, it's, it's absurd, right? It's almost like you, you, um, you can't believe what you're reading. So this is in the news last week. But this is indicative of the way that the LDP regards women's positions. The decisions are supposed to be made by men. Women can learn from men if they want to. We are going to allow them to come and learn, but we're not going to let them talk. So the, the LDP the LDP power in politics is a significant obstacle in getting more women in politics and in turn getting more women's voices heard in the policy-making arena. Gee, so how do you think that this situation can be improved well, it would be good if the LDP lost power, but that's not going to happen, or, although it doesn't seem like it's going to happen anytime soon. So I think things are changing. Social media has changed um, the rules a little bit, and I'm seeing a lot of women speaking out a lot more and having their voices reach higher levels of power. So, for example... The the um, sexual assault laws in Japan were revised in 2017 for the first time in 100 years. And after the revisions, like they improved, um, but after the revisions, some a women, women's group um, said, OK, we, we, we need to actually improve even more because there are still a few parts of this legislation that we don't like. So, for example, the age of consent is still too low. I think it's 13 or... 12 or something crazy. And secondly, in order to prove that a rape has happened, you have to demonstrate that you put up a fight. So these women's groups have come out and said, no, hang on, it still, it still needs to be revised a little bit more. And there's a, a woman, a leader of a group called Spring. Her name's Yamamoto Jun. And she... Um, so this group is campaigning for better rape laws, basically maybe insert the concept of consent and to age, raise, age, sorry, raise the age of consent. So she, uh, last year, was selected to be on a committee that deliberates how to improve the law. So she's actually made it from the world of activism to now being on a committee that is going to revise, is talking about how to revise the law. So they're going to revise the law again uh, this year, make further revisions. Well, that's one example of what I mean when I say I think women's voices are um, gradually um, making it into decision-making positions. Yeah, so is there anything else you'd like to mention that we haven't already covered? Yes, yeah, so 
these um, there are lots of different women's groups in Japan, and they they uh, tend to be fragmented. But that's not to say that you know the Me Too movement has bypassed Japan at all. There are many different groups, and they're very very active, and they're you know little by little making um, waves. Just a matter of time, I hope. Yeah. So, do you have any future study plans within this field? Yeah, I'm hoping to write, um, hoping to interview activists like um, Yamamoto Jun, who I just mentioned, and a few others, with a colleague, and we're going to write a book about the contemporary uh, women's movement in Japan. Just in actually, so in, in the context of the um, you know the broader international Me Too movement. We thought it'd be good to get uh, Japanese women activists' voices out there to contribute to the international conversation. In, in English, I mean, they are contributing, but there is, you know, if we um, um, add to the sort of English language literature, uh, we thought that would be good. Yeah, yeah, it would be really good. Yeah, well, thanks yeah. very, thanks very much for coming onto the program today. Thanks for having me. And I've been speaking with Dr. Emma Dalton about women in Japanese politics. Well, thanks so much for tuning in. Hope you've enjoyed the program and do stay tuned for Swing and Sway. Well, it's the first program back for the year. And I just wanted to acknowledge the very sad death of lovely Michael Smith here at 3CR. He was incredibly helpful with me with my program and I have actually been on Radical Australia if you'd like to have a listen to the podcast and that's in memory of Michael Smith but I just would like to acknowledge him and uh, on Radical Philosophy and I'd like to play by the stabs No Hoper. So enjoy. Up to his 
sister and seeing what he saw he turned around and made it for the door he had no Oh. 